Good morning. Um, welcome to everyone here. It's a joy to see you all here. Um, I just want to add my welcome onto Anton's, um, especially on this Father's Day. Um, yeah, he's done the intro. We, we are looking at intimacy and singleness today. We're midway through our series looking at Jesus, um, gender and sexuality. Um, and it's a, it's a topic, um, which might hit home differently for, um, many of you here. You're all at different seasons of life. Um, so I'm going to pray because we have a God who wants to speak to us no matter where we're at. Um, so would you join with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for the chance to sing your praises and now for the chance to hear from your word. Um, God, each time your word is read from and spoken from, you have a purpose and you achieve it. Um, so God, would you be at work in us now? Um, would you comfort those who need comforting? Would you rebuke those who need rebuking? And would you encourage those who need it? God, we trust that you'll be at work. Um, so would you have your way in our hearts? Amen. Well, we're looking at intimacy and singleness, but I want us to start by thinking about two things, water and fire. Water and fire. Um, if you have an out-of-control fire, the thing you need is water, right? You need water to put it out. But I reckon some of us have learnt the hard way that you, that there's an assumption of putting water or putting fire out with water. That assumption can go wrong. It doesn't quite work. If you're dealing with, say, a campfire, perfect. Bucket of water straight on the campfire. Big cloud of steam. Looks pretty cool. But if you're dealing with an oil fire, it doesn't turn out quite well. That's what it turns out to be if you throw a bunch of water onto an oil fire. There's a danger in assuming that two things always need to go together. And I reckon we make mistaken assumptions like this when it comes to intimacy. I reckon we assume that if you're longing for intimacy, the answer's sex. Just like you need water to put out fire... You need sex to fulfill the need for intimacy. And they do go together. But the truth is that it can be damaging to have them exclusively linked. Um, Last week, Tom reminded us that sexual intimacy is a tool that God gives to build and express unity in marriage. Um, But if we think that sexual intimacy is the only kind there is, is the only place to find fulfillment, well, it rubbishes the whole notion of singleness. And it makes it seem second rate. And I think I'd be fine if singleness was just a season of life that you go through, a little period of your life that you will eventually eventually graduate from. But God's word, the Bible says that singleness is more than just a stage of life. It's more than a season of life that you graduate from. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, it says that it's actually a gift from God. He gives it to you, and in it you find his goodness. You find goodness and opportunity. I mean, look at Jesus, the perfect one. He was single. He lived the best life, the perfect life. And yet we often, with our culture, we look at singleness and we think it's, we think it's a curse. 
Sex equals intimacy. Celibacy equals isolation, right? That's the assumption. So today I want us to slow down. And I want us to really sit under what God has to say around intimacy and singleness. Whether you're intentionally single, single, wanting to be married, single again, dating, married. God's word here isn't just for the singles. We all need to hear what God has to say. It's not like he goes, I'm going to speak just to the single people in his word. And the reason is that for us to hear this will mean that the singles in our church flourish and the married will flourish as well. You could be here thinking, singleness, it sounds like the best thing ever. But you could also be thinking, it sounds like purgatory. Why would you want to be there? There's a wide range of people here today, different life stages, and I want to acknowledge that I'm not going to be able to speak into all those seasons of life, all those situations. And I also don't just want to jump into the gift and opportunity that comes with singleness. Because I want to acknowledge that there's, there's grieving that comes with singleness. There's hurt, there's loneliness, and it can often be unhelpful just to jump straight to the positives. So for us as a church to understand this gift of singleness, the idea of ultimate intimacy, we need to start with this foundation of intimacy. And I should explain by saying what I mean by intimacy. It's the depth of a relationship. To look at where you're truly known and truly loved. Not a moment or an action like sex in a relationship. So we need to look at where intimacy comes from. And to do that, we're going to look at two truths and a lie around singleness and intimacy. And we're going to start with the lie. And the lie is intimacy is only found in sex. I reckon you don't have to go that far uh, to see this lie. And we often hear and see this from our culture. The lie that you can't separate intimacy from sex, which leaves singleness and intimacy as alternatives. Um, and there's a few different messages we get around this. Um, one of them is a high amount of Disney movies which say you need to find a special someone. Once you've found the special someone, the fireworks goes off and your life is fulfilled. Or the message that says, singleness is good, go you. But to be celibate, to go a life without sex, that's just, it's one step too far. Um, another place where we get this message is a movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. It laughs at the idea that the main character is a virgin at the age of 40. And you'll see people treat him like a child, like he's second class, like he's on his L plates, and he hasn't become an adult. And so the solution is, lose your virginity. And I also, I don't think it's just the Western culture, the Western world that projects this message. I think our church culture does as well. It does it to an extent. Whether it's intentional or not, I think we often elevate intimacy being found in marriage, whether it's the conversations you have with your kids and your youth about marriage being a certainty. 
whether it's the language we use of expecting those of a certain age to be married. Maybe it's the ways that we tend to just celebrate well changes in relationship status or family status more than anything else. And it even bleeds into the way that we see God's word and what God's word says to us. Um, look at one Samuel, oh sorry, two Samuel one twenty six with me. Um, so in this verse, David, king of Israel, he's grieving over his dear friend Jonathan, who was King Saul's son, and he says this: "I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women." Um, the writer Ed Shaw says this about that verse. Today it seems impossible for anyone to read this song without thinking that David and Jonathan must have enjoyed a sexual relationship. Didn't you find yourself quickly sniffing out something homoerotic about them? I think that rings true. There's a lot of other examples, but each time you read it, there is that sense of there must be more. And I think it's because our world has linked intimacy being known, being deeply known, being deeply loved with a physical act. But it's clear for David here, who had many sexual partners, that you can have a lot of sex and still not find intimacy. And it's possible to have a lot of intimacy without any sex, which in fact David did with his close friend Jonathan. He had intimacy without the sex. And so... This link, this emphasis on sexual intimacy and marriage, it can make singleness difficult. You know, when people point towards fulfillment being found in those two things, it seems that those who are single are deficient. It can be difficult in a world where you might only be taken seriously if you have children when you're married. It can be a lonely life, no matter what season of singleness you're in. Um, This is the experience of a single Christian leader and writer, Kate Warden, who says this. When we fill in a form and tick a box marked single, when we steal ourselves to enter a party alone, when we need someone's help to hold the other piece of flat pack furniture we are building, when we come home to an empty house and there is no one to tell about the highs and lows of our days, at these times and at many others, Being single can feel like the raw end of the deal. And it it can feel like the raw end of the deal when you miss out on sex and seemingly deep intimacy that comes with it. So know if that's you, if you find yourself with a gift of singleness at the moment, you have a God who grieves with you in, in these moments, who mourns with you, who longs for you to bring it to him, those burdens to him. But know this, you also have a God who speaks truth into this lie. The truth that you can have intimate and non-sexual relationships. Look at Jesus. Look at how he walked with Mary, Martha and Lazarus. They shared their lives together. They wept together. They mourned together. They loved each other. No sex involved. (laughs) 
In a world that links sex and intimacy, where singleness seems deficient, this is what God speaks into it. He speaks into it a truth that intimacy can be found without sex. And he speaks another truth into it, and this is the next truth. God knows you intimately, and he loves you. God knows you intimately and loves you. For all of us here, that's the truth, and that's the most important truth for us. That you are completely known, completely loved, completely valued, completely treasured. Not because you have a partner, not because of your bank balance, not because of how you dress, not because of your career, not even because of how often you come to church and read your Bible. No, God loves you as he created you. And get this, he didn't make you to have sex, not just to be married, but he made you in his image. And because of that, he longs to have an intimate relationship with you. It's why he'd be willing to sacrifice his son that he might be able to have an intimate relationship with you. Yes, warts and all, bad habits, your willingness to keep running back to sin. Psalm 139 shows us just how much he knows us and still loves us. It says, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You are made to be known and loved by him. You are made that he might call you his friend, which we see in John 15. Jesus doesn't call us his servants anymore, but out of a greater love for you and for me, he calls us his friend. And he calls us his friend, he calls you his friend, so that he might be the one that draws near to you. That he might be the one who you cry out to that you share your joys and your struggles and your secrets with. His goal for you has never been marriage, but it's been an eternal life with him. And this is where we run into problems. It's where we run into problems when we look elsewhere. Because everything has a limit on how much we can depend on it. Um, I'm not sure if you'll like this, But on things which say, I don't know, a plastic stool which has a weight limit on the top, it'll often be a quite low weight limit, maybe 15, 20 kilos. I often find that if I look at it, if I see that weight limit and I know I'm above it, I'm going to want to test it out. I'm going to want to see if it holds. And often it doesn't end that well. More times than not, it goes poorly. That stool, no longer a stool. And I think it's the same when we seek ultimate intimacy, ultimate fulfillment in a person who can't deliver it. Psalm 23 verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The issue comes when we put someone else in God's place. When we think they can bear the weight of our need for ultimate intimacy, for true fulfillment. When we think the grass is greener with someone else, that the grass is greener in sex and marriage, that it's better than what our good shepherd offers for us. It's why it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I, I shall not want more because I have a God who knows me intimately and loves me. That's sufficient. That is all I need. 
Okay, you're going to have an enemy who wants you to seek ultimate fulfillment in others, in other people who will let you down. You'll have an enemy who wants you to depend on sexual intimacy as what fulfills you. An enemy that's going to convince you that intimacy with God is pretty lame in the grand scheme of things. That a spouse, that a marriage, that's going to be more satisfying than God. The enemy's going to tell you that you need to put your best foot forward. You need to find the special someone. You need to update your wardrobe, fix your hair, put yourself out there. Or maybe he's going to get you to think about the marriage you once had. If you're single again, the enemy might point you back to the marriage you had and tell you you're inadequate without it. So for us to see the gift of singleness, to see its goodness, the opportunity it brings, we really need to see where ultimate intimacy comes from. We need to see that sex isn't what provides it. But it comes from a God who never tires of saying to you just how treasured and loved you are. But this isn't where God ends as well. He doesn't just end saying, you have true intimacy with me, that's all I'm going to give you, that's it. And on its own, that is a pretty amazing image. But he actually goes further and he says this, that he's going to give us the church. And he says that intimacy can be found in the church, which is our next truth. Intimacy can be found in the church. Now, hopefully by now, you'll realise that I'm not talking about the fact that you're going to find a partner here and now at church. If anything, that is what I want you to walk away with. But intimacy doesn't equal marriage or romance. But the truth is that if we are the church that Jesus calls us to be, no matter whether you're single, no matter whether you're dating or married, You can find intimacy amongst your brothers and sisters here in the church family. You are made to have intimacy with God, to find intimacy with God, and you are made to find intimacy within your church family. And yet I wonder if, for those of you here, if you experience that, I wonder if you sitting here, if you feel deeply known and loved here at church, I wonder if that's the case. Because I know that speaking from, from speaking with many of you, this often isn't the case. And right from the start, before I dive into what biblical family and friendships are going to look like, I want to acknowledge that your need for intimacy will never be met perfectly here amongst this church family. We're broken people. We're fallen people with sinful hearts and we gather as broken and fallen people. And yet God paints this amazing picture of the deep friendships we can have with one another and the open family we can be. So firstly, let me start with friendship. Um, Since the arrival of social media and its wonderfully healthy influence on all of us, I think our view of friendship has diminished, right? It's gone from a noun to a verb. Some social media platforms don't even call people friends anymore. They call them followers. 
It's gone from a treasured relationship to an acquaintance, an acquaintance who we meet up with every now and then. He can be quite disposable. And I know that's not all friendships, especially here at All Saints. Um, I see rich, intimate, deep friendships here, and I want to encourage that. I want to spur that on. But the point is that even among our church relationships, we have a lower view of friendship than what Jesus has. I think we easily elevate marriage, we easily elevate um, family above it. But this is what Jesus says about friendship. Look at John fifteen fifteen with me. This is what Jesus has to say to his disciples. And it's massive in our view of friendship, in our view right now that we have. He says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. This is what Jesus sees as the greatest love, that of being a friend. He elevates friendship to a level I often think we fail to see it on. And he describes what it looks like as well. One where at your shameful worst and sparkling best, you are loved. Where all is revealed. Where there's no secrets. Not just sticking to surface level. Um, Proverbs 18.24 says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What God says about friendship, it really does go against the grain of our world. And it's a challenge for me. It's a challenge to go beyond the superficial, beyond just chewing the fat and hanging out. It makes me ask the question, how might I foster friendships that go deeper? How might we as a church do this? And I think for us there's different responses that we're going to have as a church family. Um, So I'm going to go through a few. For the married... How might you value the friendships in your life? Are there instances when you're going to need to focus more time on certain friendships? For those who are dating, how much are you investing in your friendships? And not just with other couples as well, not just couples being friends with other couples, but with single people as well. Are you taking the time to invest in friendships? And for the singles, how might you see friendships? I think the view that Jesus has on friendships isn't that of a band-aid fix, a band-aid fix to marriage. It's not just a stepping stone people use to get to marriage or some consolation prize you get given because you missed out on marriage. But as Jesus shows, it's the greatest love you can show. So that's friendship. Um, let's look at family. Let's look at church family. Um, have a look at Mark chapter 10, verse 28 with me. Um, Peter says to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. So Peter's talking about all the sacrifices made to follow Jesus. And Jesus, he responds here with something which is quite interesting. He doesn't say toughen up. He doesn't say get over it. Jesus acknowledges that when you follow him, you're going to have to give up certain things. 
It's not a secret. And as part of that, if you are single and Christian, it means a celibate life. As you sacrifice sex and having your own children, and yet Jesus continues with this promise. He says, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. He shows them that it will be worth it in this life. That the sacrifice is worth it. Um, This may perk your ears up, but Sam Albury calls this the true prosperity gospel. This is the true prosperity gospel. Now, he's not promising that for every dollar you give, you're going to get $100 back. Or for a, you know, for the one property you own, you're going to have a lot more. It would be nice in Sydney with cost of living. But what he does promise is this. What you give up relationally, what you give up relationally is what he blesses you with. Jesus promises us a spiritual family full of homes, full of brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and persecution as well. And if you continue looking at what God says in his word, there's this familial language all around it. Ephesians 2, we're part of the household of God. 1 Timothy 5, treating fellow Christians as family. Titus 1, seeing fellow followers of Jesus as family. And 1 Thessalonians 2, how we might treat each other as a nursing mother cares for her children. It goes against this modern obsession with nuclear families, our biological families being self-contained, being self-sufficient. And it's a view that can so easily flow into how we treat church. You know, people we might see on a Sunday or a a certain weeknight for small group. But we have a God that when he draws people to himself, draws us to each other. He draws us to each other into his family. It's why the writer Rosaria Butterfield says that the gospel comes with a house key. That the gospel leads us to being a church family that invites others in. Not just with our words, but with our actions. And the onus isn't just on families here. No matter if you're single, dating, married, a question I think we can all ask ourselves is this. Is there anyone without my surname or anyone who isn't in my household that I regard as family? Who might you and I open our doors to? Open our lives to? Because we've had, we have a God who's made a way for us to be part of his family. A single savior who's given us abundant life by drawing us into God's family. We have a God who knows us intimately and loves us. And he's the only one who can truly know us and truly love us for who we are. And he's the one who calls us to being a family where intimacy can be found. Um, 
It's not going to be easy for us to be that family, to be that church full of deep friendship. So let me pray, let me ask that God would help us do that. Would you join with me? Heavenly Father, what a truth it is that you are the God who gives us ultimate intimacy. You are the God who can fulfill us. No one else, nothing else. And you call us to being a family, a church family. You call us into deep friendships. And God, we need your help with that. Um, When we're tempted to find intimacy, to find ultimate intimacy elsewhere, would you draw us back to you? Um, When we're tempted to focus on ourselves and, yeah, those around us, those in our bubble, would you help us open our doors, open our arms to invite others in? Um, God, would we be a church family where intimacy is found, where people are nurtured and people are loved? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.